So Andrew, when you went off to St. Louis to start your PhD, yep. Did you know that you wanted to write on Louis the Ninth at nope. that time? No idea. You knew who he was, though. I don't remember. <laughs> if I knew who he was, it wasn't very important to me. What first before you? <laughs> I probably knew that there was a Saint Louis, hence the city. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you did go to the right place. Yeah. You know, for that. But so before you tell us his story, tell us your story of how you came to know him. Well, actually, I it's I actually was studying wanted to study the papacy and was studying the medieval papacy, mm-hmm. and I and there was in the twelve sixties a, a couple French popes, um, which is unusual. There hadn't been French popes in a long time, hmm. and there wasn't for you know. So it was an unusual situation, um, and and so I I want I was started looking at them, but the thing that was interesting about them immediately was that they were the subjects. They had come from France. They were the subjects of this saintly king, and so the interactions mm-hmm. between the papacy and Saint Louis were really interesting, because they like the Pope is the subject of a king who's a saint who's the most powerful king in Europe. So what does that look like? That's what got me into Louis. That is amazing. So that's the path into that. And so then I just wanted to reconstruct, try to figure out how 13th century France operated, how it worked, what was the ideas behind it, how the monarchy and the papacy interacted, how the monarchy and the spiritual powers, you know, the episcopate and the monasteries interacted. And so in all of that, I'm looking at the reign of Louis, of St. Louis and how it worked. So that was sort of, those were sort of my bookends for my study was his his reign. Okay, so we're going to look at all of that some point. All Not that. all of that, some of that. Okay. But first, give us an overview of his life. You know, okay, where so, was he born? Yeah, so he's, daddy? He's, he's 13th century, tw- uh, and, and he's um, 1214, he's born, mm-hmm. thereabouts, 1214, dies in 1270. So that's, you know, his. it's a fairly long life um, uh, for the period. And he reigns, he, he comes to the throne very young, 1226. So he was only, he wasn't even 13. He was 12 years old when he became king. Um, That's but, when I became king too. So it's 12. Yeah, yeah. His dad was king for a very short period of time. Um, uh, and, and, but even from a boy when, when he was, so his dad, um, so Louis VIII went to war in the south of France against the, the, the Cathar heretics, which we can talk about later if you want to or whatever, but. But um, and it was a crusade um, within the kingdom of France itself, and I, I'm pretty sure that that Louis went with him as a boy. So, I mean, I think evidence in the sources of him having been there, and oh. his dad died on that campaign, not not in combat, but died um, on his way home from that campaign. And so then Louis is in charge, but he's he's 13, so his mom Blanche of Castile, who's a blessed, um, is the regent and and really runs the kingdom for a while for him. Um, for him to, until he kind of grew up. So he was one of 11 children and he had older brothers, but they died before, before they could take mm-hmm. the throne. So he became the king of the heir. And um, yeah, in, in, he, 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 it was, it's not until, so as a very young man, 1234, 1235, Blanche, his mom hands over um, the, hands over the kingdom to him. He gets married to Marguerite who they then have 11 children. So he's one of 11. They didn't have 11. Just keeps things simple that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so they were... <coughs> Named um, his kids the same I mean, as his, all his, his 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 family, his mother it was very pious, very and uh, had a, a real um, commitment to the Cistercians. And so he was raised and educated mm. by Cistercians. Oh, interesting. Um, and, and, and so 
is is a famous his mother. There's a famous story. I mean, you know, a lot of these stories are somewhat apocryphal, or maybe I don't know. It's hard to tell what, but that his mother had told him that when he was a boy that she would rather him die than commit a mortal sin. And that's something that he then meditated on. And actually in the testament that he wrote to his son on his deathbed, he says the same thing to his son or a version of the same thing. Is mm-hmm. that so you know a very a very sort of hardcore um commitment to to sanctity. And so what else is he 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 consolidates he consolidates royal rule in France. There's a, some rebellions with some nobles, especially under his mom when she's a regent. Tell us, what does that mean? He consolidates um, royal rule. There is, it's very common in the Middle Ages when you have a child king that nobles, certain nobles think it's an opportunity to assert their independence and, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, you have a boy king and so they do that. So there's some fighting internally. His mom is trying to put it down. He When he comes... Uh, into his uh, majority and becomes king himself, then he very quickly re- reasserts the monarchy and gets the the powerful nobles to recommit mm. to him. So that gets that gets squelched very quickly and very fairly. So this is the beginning of his reputation. From the very beginning, is that he has a reputation of fair dealing. So he to make peace, he's willing to concede, like to concede all kinds of ground. Like he doesn't he doesn't have to press the advantage. Um, he doesn't, you know, when you get him down, you keep hitting him. He doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. And and so he has this idea that, you know, whatever you can give in order to achieve peace, you ought to. Whatever, and you save, help people save face, allow them to keep their titles, allow them to keep their power, and they'll, you know. And um, and so from that very early age is when he starts getting the reputation as a saint, a, a, a really a saintly ruler, because he doesn't seem to be in it for himself. Mm-hmm. And his, even among the nobles. Which is not in the 13th century. You have strong monarchies, relatively strong monarchies, are fairly new, and so their primary, and it's a very strange political situation that we don't understand as moderns, because their their authority is really based upon the loyalty of the nobles, right? They don't have any other apparatus of enforcement other than mm-hmm. the nobles, but the nobles are also their the chief sort of competitors, right? Mm. So like the nobles are the ones that could potentially um, become more powerful in their own right. So there's a, you know, his ability to um, be respected by the nobles was a very big deal. But he, probably the most significant thing he did, the most important in his young life is to go on crusade. So as he comes of age, he's in his 20s, he makes a vow to go on crusade, much to his mother's dismay. Why was she dismayed by that? She thought it was a mistake that he hadn't consolidated enough at home and that it was a rash vow. He had been sick. He had malaria or something like that. And he made a vow that if he got well, that he would go on crusade. Mm-hmm. And then he got well. And so he said, I'm going on crusade. Yeah. His mom thought that was overly scrupulous. Mm. That he, I don't know, something like that. So, but he, a couple of years of preparation and he goes, he raises a, I don't know, 40, 50,000 soldiers, which is a big army at the time. That's huge. Yeah. And uh, attacks Egypt. Um, and can you just give us a f- quick rundown, like what's happening in Egypt? That well, the, and- the, there's the, the Holy land is in total disarray. So, so, you know, the, the, the Christians had captured Jerusalem and the, and the area surrounding Jerusalem and established a Latin kingdom of Jerusalem mm-hmm. in the late 11th century, right? The 1090s. Yep. And so that had, 
had various ups and downs over the course of the of the time period between that and when when Louis came to the throne. But at this point in the early 13th century, it was losing the the kingdom, the Latin kingdom in the Holy Land was on its last legs. I mean, it was faltering, and and the the strategic idea was that the the support um of uh, the support of the forces that were besieging the Latin kingdom were really out of Egypt. And so we could go endlessly fight at the gates of Jerusalem or hit them where they live. Right. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so the plan was to, to attack there. And then there's various theories about what the long-term plan was, but the idea was to, to, to divert, weaken them, you know, allow them to the, the weaken the Muslim forces, have them back off from Jerusalem, but then also to capture a bunch of their territory and then be able to bargain with it. Mm. All right, mm -hmm. and then make a treaty. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you have leverage. Yep. So that was the idea. Um, it wasn't successful. So they, they, I mean, they initially land. They, they. I don't know all the military history details. It's not something I'm really into. But the basic, the gist of it is that they, they win a few battles. The French do. Then they and, and Louis in the midst of these battles. Oh like, yeah, he's not just like a general on the sidelines. No, he's, no, no, no. He's no, no, swinging no. his sword. Very much so. So he's one of the last, and I know there's been instances after him of kings, uh, French kings who who get involved, get their hands dirty. But Louis was one of the, is one of the last, maybe the last who just always does. So he, you know, some of you might the sort of like medieval king, uh, you know, at the front of his knights into the battle. That's mm -hmm. Louis, right? It's not the 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 like king sitting on the hillside, yeah. you know, behind the fight. That's later. So Louis's right in the mix of it. The thick of it. Um, it's actually just expected of the king. You don't get to be king. Like I, it, this is something that this is something that modern politics has just completely lost. But you, you don't get to be king if you're not the war leader. Yeah. Okay. So, like, if you're not fighting, you're not king. <laughs> okay. So, so because so like, this is like something that like <laughs> the, there's so much is expected of peasants to work and to serve and whatever. Yeah. And so obviously there's still more tasks that be had by the king. They're just different. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, and, and the king, the the nobles in general are expected to be the warriors, and you can't. Right. Uh, uh, if, they, if they can't protect the peasants in war, like, what do they do exactly? They have no function. Yeah. <laughs> very little function, and and they don't. There's no. Oh man, it's hard even to imagine it. They don't have. There's no sense of like a bureaucratic kind of um, offices that then have sort of formal prerogatives. And so whoever happens to occupy the office of king has these prerogatives. Mm -hmm. It's not like that. It's like, you're the anointed king. You are Louis, the king, which means you are the war leader. Mm -hmm. When you touch someone, you heal them. Yeah, right? yeah, like yeah. it's you, it's not an office. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not a bureaucratic office. Right. So there's no, that idea that you could like stand back and watch. Yeah. It's like, this doesn't, it just, I think it, it would have been, it would have been stru struck them as immediately cowardly and, uh, therefore, like delegitimizing. Yeah, they would have no official role. Yeah. <laughs> they, would ha they would have no official role with which to sort of depersonalize it and say, like, well, leadership is happening, but you know, right? Not yeah, by it's you. Like you got to be in the mix. Does when um, I don't mean to harp on this. When did right. that change? I, like, I, after I, Louis, but was there? Was I'm not an expert particular... on this, but I my understanding is that that what people say I've read is that Philip the Fourth, his grandson, in the beginning of the 14th century, is the first French. King who maybe never actually fought. Mm. Yeah, Phil. He uh, first lots of firsts at Philip the Fair. <laughs> yeah, that's not really true. a good guy. He was considered to be very beautiful, but more 
statue than human. <laughs> Some of the reports say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, but but this is a great example of that. In in the fighting in Egypt, he Louis and his his bodyguard get captured because when the, his army's retreating, um, they, they were sick and they're retreating, they're losing, the, he and his bodyguard, so his retinue, like his guys, like his yeah. household. Yeah. Right, and that and that's another thing right there. It doesn't matter, but but the the, the people's military forces are the same as their households, yeah. right? So Louis' group of knights are his household, are his retainers, right? Okay, so he and his household are holding, are are doing a rear guard um, fight to allow the rest of the army to escape. So they basically are fighting off the attacking Muslim forces in order to slow them down, so the rest of the army can get away. Now that is either suicide or you get captured, right? So, wow, because you can't, you know, the whole point is that you're not retreating with everyone else. Yep. And so he gets captured. Um, Did he do that also strategically? Because they thought, well, that's the king. We know he's the king. We're not going to kill him. Well, that I don't know. Okay. I don't know the details. I don't know the details of that, maybe. But they capture him and his guys, and then they get ransomed, which is a typical medieval Mm -hmm. thing. And um, they get ransomed, but instead of then going back to France, he then goes to the Holy Land and goes spends three years in the Holy Land with his forces and starts to consolidate attempts. It's like, okay, well, the Egypt thing didn't work, but we can build a bunch of fortresses. We can get money in here. We can start training people. Mm. We can you know negotiate treaties with local um, Muslim forces. So he spent three years there kind of solidifying the kingdom and then came home. Um, and then, and then he comes home and he's a different, I mean, he's been gone for five years. He's super experienced. He's been in captivity. He's, Mm. and he comes home just like ready to go. And so he gets home and it's a reforming frenzy at home. I mean, like this is when he is, this is where him as the saintly ruler is really established because this is when he, he reforms the royal apparatus. He establishes the court system as a stable system. He establishes the investigative arms that investigate royal officials. He establishes, um, this is when he starts working with, uh, really working with the Dominicans and, and Franciscans to establish uh, um, sort of a in- inquisitorial, but a inquisitorial regime, which is not what people think. I mean, it's, it, it's a way of investigating if there's wrongdoing and then solving them. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see a connection between? Uh, I'm familiar with this more from like the Carolingian period, but like a connection between the Crusade and then the Crusade for Holiness, in the sense of like it being a singular social act to be. It sounds like you're describing him going out in Crusade and then coming back, but then what he was learning from the experience of the Crusade is applicable here. Oh yeah, it's one worldview. It's one, it, it's one understanding of office. Of, of, of and I don't mean office in a bureaucratic sense. I mean of yeah. who I am as king. Right? That I am, I have my that the king's purpose is the salvation of the the people. Hmm. All right. And this is very explicit. This isn't like theoretical. Like when they're anointed king. They are anointed as David. As, yeah, could you t- could you so kind it, of it, slow down and talk about that for a moment? Like what that anointing is. Yeah, they uh, the French monarchy and most of the monarchies of Europe mm-hmm. at this point are are explicitly um, Davidic, and and I mean this in 
very literally, like like if you look at the the iconography of their of their um, of what it means to be king, it's all Davidic images, David mm. from the Old Testament, and and this is because. And he's anointed, right? He's an anointed king. David is just and like so, a priest is, and anointed. they are anointed. Yeah. The, the kings are anointed, and that anointing is not is real. It's a, I mean, it's sacramental. It's not. It becomes clear. It becomes clear over the course of the twelfth and thirteenth century that it's not one of the seven sacraments, and the reason why is because it's old law, not new law. I mean, you know, like like <laughs> that makes sense. They're anointed in the way that David is anointed, which is real. It's just not the way that. You know the new law, the anointing, and the, the like. For example, of a priest or something, or mm-hmm. in the new law work. So, so it's a real sacramental office of king, and it's christological. So they had no qualms whatsoever as referring to the king as the vicar of Christ. In the 13th century, the Pope refers to the king as the vicar of Christ. Wow. Okay. So you know this is. It's just. It's not Christ. It's it's the Davidic Christ. Yeah, or say it's the Christ of temporal order, the Christ of uh, of law, the Christ of war, mm. um, um, which is always present. You know, so the new law or the New Testament is the fulfillment of the old, but it what it really is in the Church Militant is the fulfilling. Right, it's an ongoing yeah. fulfilling of mm-hmm. the temporal of the yeah. old. So the spiritual is that which which the spiritual power, the spiritual the grace revelation is that which completes completes the temporal or the natural by giving it a new dimension or a new depth to it, right? It's not like um, adding of this more of the same, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. It adds a whole no- another dimension is like the way to think of to, to reality. But that is, a pro- that is something that happens in time, right? It's temporal. So what that means is that to the medievals, the church in the, the militant church has every, every step in I'm trying to think about how to say this. Every step in the in in the course of salvation history, right, that occurs, is always occurring. Okay, so so because salvation history, what the new law is, is the salvation history with its fulfillment in yeah, it, yeah. but it's happening, right? So so you have the law, you have the sword, you have judgment, you have mm-hmm. the Old Testament stuff, but it always is pointing past that into its completion in charity and holiness and sanctity. Right, so you have the Davidic kings, but then you also have the monks and nuns. Right, you have, you have the the old is there, but the old as elevated into the new. Mm-hmm. So they understand then their kingship as Davidic but Christological. Right, so it's it's theologically it's difficult, I think, for us because it's a sacramental, it's a sacramental worldview well, I think that we have basically got and don't have anymore. It's also difficult because it's dynamic, and yeah. so it means that. Uh, the kingly power, the royal power, is oriented towards its own, uh, the lack of its own necessity, right? So, like, in certain da- dimensions, David yeah. is fulfilled in Christ, Christ, right? Yep. Which means that the office, the royal office, has a purpose beyond itself, something transcendent, which is hard for us because we tend to think of things as arrangement, like fixed constitutional yes. arrangements. Right. So, it's well, the king does this, right? And then we also tend to think things in terms of the a battle for sovereignty, so which which is always a solidification of of greater and greater power. So, um, whereas it seems like the the dynamism of the Middle Ages is that you have the king acting um, for the sake of a society that would need less and less of the Old Testament uh, way. Exactly. If he is successful, precisely in being an Old Testament kind of right. But what's really figure. brilliant of it is that. 
as the kingdom moved into sanctity, the king doesn't become unnecessary. Right. He becomes more Christ and less David. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right, right, right. Right. Okay. So yeah. he be, as the he, could you just bring the, the, the New what, Testament is fulfilled and he becomes now the king. Yeah. It's ruler not. It's of the not new. like a. It's not you like a, <laughs> It's not like an obsolescence because it's like oh well now there's less sin and you've defeated the you don't need the sword the Muslims anymore. and you've defeated the heretics right. and so now your your kingship can just be a sort of you know, symbolic headship, but rather saying that you are now more and more able to be the fulfillment of David in Christ. Right. So that's, that idea, that's what makes it a sacramental kingship or sacramental kingdom is it's a kingdom that, that subsists in time, but is, is, it really is a sign of an efficacy, right? Like it's, it, it's a sign of the kingdom of God mm. of the, of the, and it is actually becoming it through grace. Like it's a efficacious sign, <laughs> right? So it's a sacramental kingdom. So, but the answer to your question is that when he gets, he gets back from this, from the crusade and it, it, he's, he's in part convinced that he had failed as a king, not only because he failed militarily in Egypt, but because he has failed internally to to bring the kingdom to holiness. Mm. And so he thinks that, and he comes back convinced that he needs, in order to go back and fight them again, because he has every intention of going again, right? This is just a setback, we're going to go back and do it again, that he needs to get France in order, and France needs to become committed um, to holiness and to orthodoxy, and then that will enable him to successfully launch the crusade, the second crusade. And it's, it's not, it's, 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 it's very interesting because it's both, it's both functionally it'll help you and spiritually, right? Like you get it in order and you'll be able to get the, re, you'll centralize the resources you need. Okay. But then it's also that you'll have God's favor, the, you know, and so the reforms that, the reforms that Louis implements are about establishing and maintaining the peace, um, and they're 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 very fascinating and, and really a window into the the medieval world. Um, but there's also a great deal that's going on with prayer, public liturgy, processions, the reforming of monasteries. Wow. I mean, it, as integral to what we would think of as sort of secular stuff, like establishing. The, the centralized courts and doing all that kind of stuff. There is just as much material um, about the pr sort of the public prayer life of the kingdom. We found this when we were looking at the life of Alcuin a little bit, that his sort of knee-jerk response to any kind of material loss or loss of in war and invasion was immediately that the monks weren't praying enough. Yeah. They must be drunkards. And that if, <laughs> I'm serious. Like he yeah. would just be like, you're, you're probably drinking too much. You're probably eating too much. If you would stop this, then um, you wouldn't be invaded by Vikings basically. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it, at this juncture, it might be worth like at least posing the, the kind of cynical interpretation that obviously anyone who wasn't Catholic or not even that, I should just say most people would probably have where they would say, well, don't you think that the consolidation of a kingdom into a sort of spiritual unity is in fact for the sake of its efficaciousness as an empire, as some something yeah, that can right. win wars. It's like, yeah, I can imagine if we had substitute any, you know, unity. I imagine if we were all like committed, I don't know, Republicans and we yeah. all agreed on the principles and we all, um, yeah. 
participated in Republican liturgies together, that we would effectively be able to be a nation with a ability to win wars. For well, instance, yeah. I mean, there's some truth to that, clearly, right? I mean, nature and grace are not at war with. I mean, like yeah. the, 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 the <laughs> great grace, grace perfects it. So, yeah. so if you say consolidation, uh, you know, um, it is the case that being just being peaceful, being just also makes you more powerful. Right. And, I, and not just because God like just gives you like magic tricks or something like as a reward, right? It's not like, oh, you're nice. So I'm going it, to, it's like, no, like the, 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 the pursuit of order and peace is the cooperation with grace, with truth and grace that then makes you strong. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, so I don't, I don't know. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't like the idea of, I don't like the idea of saying that some people would say that, oh, the, the prayer life or the religious life is merely functional or the idea that it's not functional at all and that it's just this sort of supernatural, yeah. miraculous thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, no, it's the function includes the supernatural. The grace is what makes it function. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're bound up together. It seems like most suspicious readings of the Middle Ages involve modern saying something to the effect of well if i were doing that i would not really believe in the prayers yeah but you know i suppose I mean? there's also the other side of it is that even though it might be a technique that a modern would use sure like trying to like they spiritually do which buy, they do yeah, yeah which yeah. obviously they do immensely yeah yeah the marketing the you know the pop oh, and circumstance the, absolute, the whole 19th century yeah. 18th 19th century politicized <laughs> politicized christianity is about that but. yeah absolutely i mean right. you as you've argued like the kind of the the re-evangelization of america during the second world war yeah is yeah. is you know Somewhere. right in, right, right, in right, keeping yeah. with yeah. that but the so though it kind of accidentally or like externally looks the same or there might be some techniques that are used the whole point in the purpose is different and so if there are some sort of relations that overlap it is actually missing the, the fundamental well, and point. It's actually different. It is different in form. Oh, so, so, it, so sure. the form, the form that like Louis's kingdom takes, um, is not of a state, right? So, so you can. We're, we're, what we're asking is whether or not this Christianity is ideological, right? Like in a modern sense, mm. and I think that it's not. One of the ways that you can see that it's not is that the actual political form of the kingdom is not the form of empire or state, right? Which is what ideologies correspond to. So like, yeah. like ideologies can produce that kind of coherence mm -hmm. or help produce it. But what they're, the, the, the sort of uh, structural form that corresponds to it is, is you know, a, a imperial or, or nation state-ish, state, you know, where, whereas... It, the medieval kingdom of Louis is not like that at all. There's there's no centralized there's no centralized apparatus, virtually none. Um, it it is entirely a, a, a based upon loyalty and commitment to the center, you know, commitment to the to the authority of the king and to work in his to service, Louis, not like his office. No, but like Louis, the yeah. people who mm -hmm. are like his yeah. reforming or his action is not ha, isn't a isn't some sort of jur juridical state, right? That has interchangeable parts and interchangeable people. It's not an apparatus like that. It's 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 based upon loyalty and um, friendship. 
right? So he's building the loyalty of powerful men who themselves mm. have networks of friends and those, and, and, and they're joining in his reforming men, uh, impulse or mentality to reform this, this kingdom and um, order it towards justice. And so, I mean, Louis, I, I mean, I don't know, but I, when I was doing the research, I was kept in a, a, a list of what you might think of as like officials that worked for the crown. Mm. And I mean, over the course of 40 or 50 years in time of me doing all this research, I, I don't think I came up with a hundred names. Wow. I mean, I, 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 so it's like of people who you might think of as like employees right. or yeah. something, you know, like they just, there's loads of people involved, but like people who work for the center, the center, it's not there. Mm. So, so, so it's a totally different, and that's what I'm saying is it's not the, the, the truth and the, the movement, the commitment to the truth and the movement into charity and friendship is the bond, is the, the backbone of the, of the entity. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. That's, yeah. and that's different than an ideological regime. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just yeah. to kind of like <laughs> put some meat on these theoretical bones here, like he, doesn't even though he raises an army, he does not have a standing army. That's right. You know, I he, mean, he has his his bodyguard. household. Yeah, but yeah, no, right. no. But to describe <laughs> yeah. that. I mean, it's literally a household. It's like people yeah. that live with him, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're like they train or together. The, they the pray together in the immediate estates. Or like, yeah, in this, in the, in the like the his royal estates. Es yeah, seems like exactly. Yeah. yeah. Seems, <laughs> seems like there's just a, a parallel between the way they fought wars and then the way that they um, ordered society at home that those networks of obligation and friendship were what ordered the different parts of the army it's what you mm -hmm. responded to the sum to the summons, summons to the muster yeah, because right. your lord who you had an oath to yeah. is going right um and and it can make the crusades very confusing to people because they point to things like well they were really inefficient because they all had uh these different Goals like there, yeah, there's yeah. so many different goals, but that's also just a description of the Middle Ages generally. It's not like a problem with their army. It's like the Middle Ages was a network of friendships and oaths and loyalty. So they're doing the same thing at war as they're doing in peace. Yeah, it's an amazing. It's actually an amazing historical fact that people should pay attention to in its bizarreness that that the that it was that way. I mean, that you can both at the same time summon, put together an army of 50,000 warriors, all right? And we're not talking about rabble, right? Yeah. Like 50,000 soldiers. Um, you could put that together, cross the Mediterranean, wage war. And so you're capable of that, but you don't have an empire. Like you don't have... You're not getting like this con. Yeah, like kind you're of not, like you're not back at home with you know as Diocletian. Yeah, it's like that. That is a historical anomaly, and you don't even have that is buzz, that that requires explanation. Do you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even you know, so and obviously, um, uh, you know, that's an expensive thing yeah. to maintain. Right. And one of these kind of he has this list. I mean, this letter to. His son. To his son that he writes. It's it's great. We'll link everybody to it. But um, you know, one of the things that he says is that he he tells his son, do not oppress like this is like when you become king. Yeah, do so not it's like often called his last testament, or it's sort of like his deathbed advice to his son. Yeah. Okay. 
Do not oppress your people and do not burden them with taxes except under great necessity. I mean, right. <laughs> that's not a usual thing you know, that you hear. And even what he's sorting through, and I think just, just to frame this, this is something that's been helpful for me um, before we get into like how he reformed his kingdom, is realizing that what he is reforming are the kind of the natural relationships that have organically arisen amongst his people. Mm-hmm. So what he's what he's judging is what um not his own laws, really. I mean in some cases he is, I suppose, but um but usually it's seeing whether or not um the pe- like real peace, like real friendship has been cultivated in one place and other places where that hasn't been the case. Mm-hmm. And it's like what can we do to actually cultivate not just some sort of fake peace. But one that's real and genuine, where there's friendship that's like that's genuine, that's emerging, mm-hmm. and so that's another thing that he tells his son to maintain good customs of your realm and put down the bad ones. So how right. does he do that? Yeah. So what you're what you're referencing here is is the the fundamental difference between Christian medieval conceptions of rule and mm-hmm. that Louis is the, the ultimate example of, and modern. All right, mm-hmm. is that they they don't they don't understand social order. So peace is mm-hmm. the word they would use, peace. They don't understand peace as something that is constructed by positive like um, human action. What I mean is that it's not like peace isn't something that you design and implement. Okay? It's not, a, it's not a, a, you know, it's not a state building apparatus. Order, the social order, the order that is peace doesn't come from extrinsic force, mm. all right? What, Peace is the result of charity, which is the, which is a result of of a combination of sharing the faith, living in grace, working together, being friends. Basically, that's peace, and so that is and that reality of people living together in a thick. In, it's like I don't even know. It's it's so hard for me to describe this because I want to try to get people to understand that to them. The spiritual and the material and the temporal are are totally bound up together, and so when you have peace, that is always also because you're having faithfulness and you're in, you're you're um, you know frequenting the sacraments, and these are always bound up together. Mm. So a peaceful uh, village, say that is that is is then the thing that the the higher levels of order in in one so that they have two sort of uh, uh, very simply simply said, they have two sort of offices or um, um, uh, jobs to do. One is to be a, a, a mechanism of unity between peace, peaceful communities, mm-hmm. right? So how are the peaceful communities united into a bigger peaceful thing? Mm-hmm. Well, there are sort of vectors of unity, mm-hmm. right? And that the, the higher lords, the monarchy, these sorts of um, people are, are the ones who, who provide those bridges between peaceful communities. But and then also the maintenance of the main maintenance of peace when the peace is wounded. So when there's a conflict, when there's violence. Mm-hmm. So then the the job is to investigate why there's violence, why there's conflict, figure out how the peace was broken, who's the breaker of the peace, and then rectifying it. Right. And that so when we talk about like custom, it, it's it's almost like our conception of custom isn't thick enough. Right. It's mm. not it's not just custom like. I mean, it, it can be explicitly custom, like I get to put my pigs in the 
woods in August and you don't, and that's the custom. Okay, there's that kind of custom. But then there's the sort of deeper um, way that we are, you know, like the way that we live, the way that our order holds together. Mm -hmm. And the king has no notion that that's his, that he is the the source of that, mm -hmm. right? Or that he is the the owner of it, or he, right? Like the world... The world subsists in a harmony and sin and violence is the exception, right? It's not, it's not this modern assumption that, it, that it, but that if there wasn't a monarch who was overawing everyone with power, then we'd all be eating each other, yeah. right? Like they don't have that idea. They think, they think, no, like it seems to be the case that Christians are living together with various degrees of peace and we just need an authority is justified in intervening when that peace is broken. Yeah. He just right? defends it. He defends it. He's defender of the peace. Yeah. Right? And not the source of it. So that means that they're, they overwhelmingly understand themselves as judges rather than legislators. So law, like positive law from the center. Oh, my goodness. I mean, people make these huge, big deals historians do about Louis, about his grand ordinances and things, these like laws that come from the center of these ordinances. And, but it's, it's, what's remarkable about it is how rare they are. I mm. mean, one of the things it's like, yeah, that happens three times in his entire reign. And they are overwhelmingly, the, those kind of grand ordinances from the center are overwhelmingly about the procedural, like sort of procedural and moral exhortation to his officers, right? His men who are, uh, who are um, exercising justice out throughout the countryside, how they ought to behave. It's not, they're not about legislating the population. Yeah. Right? They're not, they're not, that, that is a modern conception that the centralized legal authority is uh, an authority of disciplining the population, disciplining the population into conformating, conforming behavior and stuff. That's very modern, right? That's not, that's not the way they conceive of it. Yeah, I remember a similar argument being made about Charlemagne's various ordinances and then reading one that started with it was like ordinance one uh, obviously i can't give rules for everyone in this kingdom because it's so big so obey the commandments yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's, they're doing something a little different <laughs> yeah right so so this like what what louis is very aware of is that peace this peace is fragile right mm -hmm. so you're not this isn't like a utopian thing mm -hmm. right like there the, the society does exist which means there is a peace but the peace is fragile and the peace is violated normally, almost always, I mean, maybe by definition, of the weak or the powerful exploiting the weak, right? That there is, there is peace is being broken because people who have more power are, are using that power in order, it, you know, within the sort of absence of an overawing power, right, is, are capable to local, of locally exploiting people. Can you give us an example? Um. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, the 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 examples are manifold, but maybe the most the, the 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 most just sort of paradigm example would be say you're a lord and you have peasants who are who are on your domains, right? So you're the lord of the this territory and there's peasants that live on it. And you have traditional um uh they they owe you a certain amount of work, say. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they owe you um you know, 2 days of work a week or something on on the 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 estate's lands. Okay, something like that. All right. And then you say, actually, you owe me three. Right? And it's like, and I have enough power that you better do it or I'm going to like beat you up. 
okay, like that. Okay. <laughs> there would be an example. And they're like, wait, we only owe you two. And it's like, no, you owe me three and I'm strong and I've got a bunch of armed thugs and we're going to like, you know, you better do what we say. Okay, right? Like that happens. That's crime. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so the king, the king is the one who gets to roll in and say, no, you don't get to do that. The, the peasants only owe you two days. Mm. That's the way it's always been. Yeah. That's the way it is. You can't change it. And you speak a lot about, you know, <laughs> you speak a lot about the fact that because within Christendom, the peace is understood to be prior to sin. So it's actually a very, it's a very pleasant view of man, actually. That yeah. All right. So you, it's rather optimistic. If you, yeah. If you, leave, <laughs> if, if you leave them alone, generally they'll get, get on together and, until they don't. And then, and then you can. Yeah. Right. Act. Um, <laughs> But you describe the king as not, because he's not the source of the peace, as not knowing the peace prior to the conflict, right? So That's right. what's the mechanism for Louis to be that judge? So he, this is one of his major reforms, because the problem that you had in this way of governing was that what if there's levels of corruption, right? Mm -hmm. Like what if the, the next level up is is cronies with the guy who was abusing the peasants and, yeah. and you get this these sort of problems because sin is pervasive. Mm -hmm. And so what Louis does is he he sets up a a sort of um well I don't know how to describe it, but it's a it's a it's a bureau of investigators, sort of. All right. FBI. Like a, a sort federal, of a federalized a federal bureau, bureau of, of investigators, would you say? And what these guys do, and they're they're often Franciscans or Dominicans, and then often also a layman together in teams. Again, just like today. <laughs> is that they they travel and they are proactively looking for what they would called infamy. So they're proactively looking for um and, and asking like for infamous people who, and if, if there is infamy, so somebody then what that means is, is they have a reputation or there it's, it's been reported in the, the rumor mill or yeah. whatever that people are, are crying out of uh, injustice, then they investigate it. And what that consists of is showing up at the village or wherever it's occurring and asking everyone, interviewing people secretly, you know, so interviewing them, what what's happened, who's done what, what used to be the case, what's the new case, who's in the right, who's in the wrong, figuring it out, mm -hmm. um, having a trial if they need to, and then compelling um, uh, peace. So like determining who's right and who's wrong and reestablishing the peace. Yeah. And when, in the process of doing that, they um, they institute like legal rights, short term right. It's, it's a very it's a very fascinating thing. So you, like you can you can so let's say you have a lawsuit or you're fighting about something, and these royal um, enquitors or inquisitors come and rule in your favor. Okay, now there's this there's a social conflict that doesn't just go away, right? Like, yeah. you, and so, so they've so, ruled in your favor, say, so now you have a right, like you actually have like a document, like a charter that says, hey, the king said I get to cross the bridge in May or something. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> so you give an ex example of this in the book, just <laughs> look, look, again, just to make, make this really clear. There is a, some peasants that were going to get wood from the local forest. Oh yeah, so the, that's that's yeah, that's an example I give a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that one. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the Lord uh, says you can, you know he can't take all this wood. They be you know the inquisitors find this out. They report it back to the king, and the king says, "Explain yourself." Yeah. And the peasants say, well, "We always go get wood from this forest." And the Lord says, "Well, no, they only ever get one cart full." Now they have two. Now they have two. And the peasant says, "Well, sometimes we get one, sometimes we get two. Right. The king. 
looks back, history, he figures out. Sometimes they took one, but other times they took two. And therefore, they weren't doing anything special. They That's weren't right. breaking the they peace. They weren't breaking the peace. The Lord was. Yeah. And so what that means then is that now they have a right to one or two. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they would talk about it that yeah. way. But what's really interesting about these rights is that they're forgotten. Mm-hmm. All right. So they're not, there's no sense of them being sort of timeless statutory thing. Is that just like how they, the king had to investigate whether or not they took one or two, you know, 50 years down the line, if there was a conflict and someone said, I have this right, then the king would look into it and go, mm, that hasn't really been, no one's been doing that for the last 30 or 40 years. That's not good anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's not a part of the piece anymore. Right. So it's, it's, they're forgotten. So it's, it's, those are temporary, all sort of positive, that kind of positive action are temporary what, like patches, Yeah. right, on the social fabric, but they're understood mm-hmm. as being patches that are, in te- or like maybe a better would be like stitches in a wound, mm-hmm. Yeah. right? What? And they're supposed to heal. Why do you think- Dissolvable, <laughs> dissolvable stitches. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> Why do you think that's saintly? Mm-hmm. I mean, like- Well, because I think it takes, what's saintly here, what's saint, what, I mean, I, I think this is a form of rule that sort of requires- Saintliness, I'm afraid. Yeah, right. No, I see what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, if you're not, there's no, there's no like checks and balances. Right. Um, there's no like hedging against corruption or very little of it, you know? I mean, it may even help explain why, like you asked the question before we started, or what happened with his grandson, Philip IV, who, yeah. you know, all the bad stuff with Boniface VIII and all that. And it, it, and part of the answer may be, well, there was no, there's no like institutional, juridical drag on becoming a tyrant. Like you just kind of flip the switch. Yeah. Do you and, know? <laughs> did he so, attempt to keep his inquisitors holy? Like, was oh, that... very much so. That's the reason why he suggests, that's the reason why he made such good use of the Dominicans and the oh, Franciscans. Right. Of course, yeah. Right, because they were they were to be trusted. You know when you can presume that of everybody? Uh, I know, <laughs> I know. Yeah, so they, they were to be trusted. And, and and it's very, I mean, I've read all these records and, and it's very fascinating. Like in the Testament to his son, he talks about always siding with the poor against the rich until, proven until it's been proven that the rich are right. But yeah. always assume that the poor are correct. Right. Yeah. And then he also says it about himself. Always, if someone makes a complaint against the crown, always assume that we are wrong, that the crown is mistaken. Yep. Right. Until, <laughs> and, and operate under that assumption until it's been demonstrated otherwise. And then, even then, Just like the IRS. even then, he yeah. says, he says, and even if you're in the right, if peace can be maintained through yeah. the concession, yeah, do well, it. Why do you need it? Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it's like it, and, and so they have. These records are just amazing because you have this king and the petitions that are coming in about abuses, complaints of abuses of royal power against people, right? Like, and not just him, like your grandfather did this. You, your grandfather took this land unjustly from my father. Your grandfather imposed this taxes here, your, right? And they would investigate him. And, and the amount of, I mean, the majority of time they rule against the king, against Louis. Hmm. Right, Louis's own men himself as judge rules. I mean, he's ultimately a judge rules against the crown yeah. in favor of the people. All right now, this is. I mean, can we think of any government doing that? <laughs> well, it, it's, you know? <laughs> it, this, this might seem simplistic, but it strikes me that the need to do that, right, is the need to always maintain 
the legitimacy of the office on the basis of its power. So what I mean is like insofar as we're going to establish the idea of a, of a sovereign rule that rules because it's the mightiest, mm-hmm. then any kind of victory going the other direction yeah. delegitimizes right. the rule on that basis. But where you begin by saying that you are ruling for the good of the whole, and you actually mean that, then any defeat is a victory still because oh, yeah, I think the whole right. is more peaceful. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can imagine the kind of loyalty that it engenders, oh, the sort of commitment um, to the to the monarchy and the and the sort of willingness to to um, I don't know what the sort of patience or willingness, like hey, the king is a good guy, he's just, he won't wrong us, so we better mm-hmm. go along, even mm-hmm. if we think this is mistaken, mm-hmm. right? And so the ability to marshal resources and power, you know, um, becomes significant. And this is this is building then to his his next crusade, right? Um, when he goes in twelve seventy, this time attacking um, Tunis, right, in North Africa, right across, um, with an even larger force, I believe, um, and also disastrous, <laughs> and he dies there, um, and is acclaimed as a saint immediately, and body brought back and you know so it, he he died actually in battle like no somebody... no he died of disease like most soldiers okay yeah, yeah. yeah isn't that yeah it's funny how that works yeah <laughs> you know i mean he going was, other places yeah really the that's problem. why I mean, a lot more traveling. a lot more medieval warriors die of disease in the camp than they do of combat right so yeah but nevertheless i've a heard martyr, they I, say <laughs> i mean the crusaders were considered martyrs sure i mean yeah don't think they would have died of disease yeah, at home. Quite that dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does, so I've heard a critique of various points in Christian in, in Christendom about Christendom being accused as being like the origins of the of a managerial um, approach. And, and it's it's always troubling when I read it. Um, the last guy I was reading was was Ivan Illich, and he was saying something to the effect of um, the way that he's trying to explain, he's trying to explain the creation of contemporary society as being consumers with needs that have to be fulfilled by a state and its economic structure as being like the fundamental description of man. Mm. And he points, he locates it in periods like this where the church, like the the drive for holiness, sends people into existing pieces, peace, like order communities, and has them essentially um, create the habit of self-examination, of inquisition for the sake of um, like the this the centralized power becomes the thing that investigates and has other people investigate their own activities. So then they sort of mark this as the beginning of a political form in which order doesn't come from below, from these particular communities, but in fact comes with the sort of approval of the church, now considered as a sort of essentially tyrannical mother that won't let the child off the breast kind of thing. Yeah. Have you heard? I mean, this oh, is sort yeah. of Foucault, Foucault, for sure. Lots of people. I mean, this argument. And, I, I and they think, point to times like this, like this kind of yeah. disciplining of a population through 
Um, but the, but this is I think we're conflating different time periods. Okay. And different. Um, so so where that where that kind of a critique takes I don't know where it lands where it, where it, it has some truth to it I yeah. mean, real truth to it I think is in the later the later Middle Ages and then even more so in the early modern period. Okay. And you the what's confusing about it I think. And in which case you are seeing that sort of thing. Like, for example, there's a, um, a, a, a Charles Taylor actually has a whole chapter on this in, in his book, The Big Book Secular Age, which is really interesting. And he, he's talking about the late 18th century and the early 19th century, this late, and about how the church is facing, he calls it the period of mobilization. But the idea is that you're facing the Republicans, and we're talking about the French Revolution here, and the, the ideologues that are spinning out of that who are mobilizing society as basically political parties with ideological devotion committed to the politics, okay? So, and that the, the conservatives and the church in response to that m wants to mobilize the faithful in a similar, has to mobilize the faithful in a similar form mm. in order to counter them. And that includes er like eradicating basically traditional embedded forms of structure because those aren't conducive to the power of mm. the the centralized church which is battling the socialists and the liberals right and so we have to go in and and conform them to the now mobilized church mm. right that's a narrative and that i think that happened i mean yeah. i think that happened in in the baroque period and then into the modern period yeah but and i and i think that 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 happened and and you can always you when you push when you push historical events back everything has a genealogy right and so you can always see the the precursors the pieces before it the pieces before it the pieces all the way yeah. back and i guess yeah. you can go all the way back to the 13th century if you want to yeah but what you're going to find in the 13th century is not a is a desire on the part of reformers to purify and sanctify what they find not not the conversion away from what they find to something else. I see, yeah. Mm. Now that, but that purification, that sanctification does involve examinations. It does involve penance. It does involve, yeah. right? But that's just the story of sanctity, isn't it? I mean, there's, yeah. like what there isn't in Christianity is this idea of some sort of like noble savage, just like the organic community is peaceful totally. and lovely and like outside missionaries and people show up and mess it all up. It's yep. like, no, the... The organic, unchristianized communities are are like cannibals. Yeah. Right. Okay. So when you <laughs> yeah, no no I think that's right. that's definitely the the air that they fall into is this kind of idea that they ha they lose any notion of good and evil and just settle for like touched and untouched. Exactly. Like and the then, untouched is 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 good. Yeah. I mean yeah. that's denying original sin. I think so. Yeah. And and what that is a, that is an that is a illusion. I mean, uh, yeah, that's something that the medievals, the high medievals just were not deluded by. Like they they understood there to be sin everywhere. But part of the optimism is that sin is always a disorder and a privation. And so wherever you find sin, there is, there's something there that is sinning mm -hmm. and that you don't, you don't just destroy that thing and create something new. Right? Convert it. You convert it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and do, do you think that same logic applied? So I understand this within the realm of the baptized in the sense that I understand having the optimism of saying like, well, every community that we are going to investigate 
we are going to presume that the by the grace of their baptism, by their Christianity, that their peace is coming from within and that we can view evil as a sort of extrinsic but ultimately um, through grace conquerable uh, perversion and not the thing itself. But then when they turn to face the Jew or the Muslim and really just anyone who doesn't have that, is it the same presumption? Is it the same within the kingdom, the same kind of... No, there's and there isn't even... The presumption of peace is subtle. So, so what it, it and it is based. It's not a sort of juridical. I don't know how to like like for example the the respect for custom. Yeah, is immense. I mean, custom trumps everything. Yeah, unless it's a bad custom, <laughs> in which case it's just to be abolished. Well, who? How do you know? Right? And it's like, well, you. That's what it means to be king <laughs> is to be the one who is prudent. Right, and so even the presumption of peace isn't however these people happen to be living must be fine. Right, Absolutely. yeah, it's like oh no, actually in southern France where the way these people are living is depraved, mm. and they're basically brigands and heretics, and this is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't then translate to well, therefore the king is in charge of everything, and everything is up to whatever he wants, which yeah. is like what the sort of silly. Uh, sovereignty thinkers would want to do, yeah. right? Would be, oh, well, if he has the ability yeah. to decide when to suspend the norm, then he is the foundation of the norm. It's like, that's not, actually, that doesn't follow at all. Yeah. <laughs> right? Maybe he's just a prudent man who makes decisions and and his the ability for his decisions to be efficacious are themselves based upon a norm he doesn't control, right? Like he has to say, that's a bad custom. And the other people go, yep, you're right, <laughs> right? Otherwise, you know, because he doesn't have an army. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so it's like that is his check almost. It, it's always circling yeah. back. And the, pr yeah. the man who's judging, the man who's yeah. making decisions, who's assessing it is in a context of yeah. a piece. Right. And he's, and so well, that's really important what you're saying because the, the, the truth always matters. Like yeah. if you're going to go to war, it's not the case that you have prearranged a bureaucracy that will either go to war or not go to war. There's not a standing army that's prearranged and paid to either go to war or not go to war. In every instance, there has to be essentially conviction from your nobles, that's right. from the people that act. Yeah, or and but or that appeal can't just be to, um, like by yeah, definition, you, can, you it might has be able to, be, to trick them or pull one over on them a couple times, yeah, but then yeah. it stops working. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> or, but the way the way that it really unravels is if if you go for something of their self interest. No, it's just presumably how Philip the Fair the Fourth. Louis well, you Cranston. start using their self-interest. Exactly. Right, but that's, that's, your, that's how you build the tyrannical regime. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. how this whole thing breaks down. But if you're going down to conquer the Albigensians or whatever, because it, they're just bad and there's nothing in it for you, right? then there is kind of that check. Because it's like, there's 10 other people in your household that have to say, yeah, we're going to go with you. But what is in it? But there's nothing in it for me. Like you actually have to be committed to. Yeah, no, I, that's to the right. peace, to that's the right. justice. Yeah, that's right. That's mm -hmm. right. So, but but so the outsiders. The point. The, the thing about outsiders is that they can be. And this is very touchy, obviously. I mean, but but they, they can be integrated to the peace, to a certain extent, right? But they but they're always foreigners. Mm -hmm. So, so they always, for example, have a different law that they live under, mm -hmm. right? Like um, um, Jews, Muslims in certain parts of Spain, you know, where there, are, <laughs> where there are these minorities, they don't live under the, they live under norm, oh, normally under the law, direct law of the king, 
right? Because they're foreigners. I mean, in the same sort of way, a foreigner merchant traveling through Mm -hmm. the kingdom wouldn't be a part of the customary regimes, but would be under the royal protection. Yeah, Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So they're different. It's weird. I mean, not to go go down this route, but it sounds like that that relationship is in fact what gets absolutized. Yeah, it's like that's like imagine all of us as being foreigners. And yeah. And you're getting there. Right. <laughs> Which also works for the modern ec- economy, right? Well, that's there's a lot to true. charge usury, usury against a foreigner. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that actually, <laughs> now this is just a total tangent, but, but actually that gets turned around in, in uh, the 13th century too. It's like, who are the only people that you're allowed to charge usury to? It's actually your friends. And the, and the trick yeah. of that one is, is like, because you're never really going to punk them. You know, you're oh, never right. really going to I'm screw not your friends. With any of that. Yeah, but anyways, that's it's so interesting. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting reversal of that deuterocanonical rule. Um, Andrew, the last thing, and then I mean, I don't, hopefully this is this is quicker. But Louis's deference to the church. Mm-hmm. This is something that also comes up quite a bit in um, in various ways in in his last testament. Right. Um, that, um, you know, for instance, he says that that um, there's a story that he's telling about a king, Philip, I guess probably the first you were saying before. Maybe the second. We, we see, I, yeah, it maybe sounds the second, like the yeah. first to me. I, I would have to look it up. He, um, he, he tells, so Louis tells a story to his son about his grandfather or grandfather, something like that. And it goes like this. Um, the king one day was with his privy council and he was there... Uh, and he was there who told me these words. Okay, there you go. Okay, so it must have been Philip II. <laughs> okay, there okay. you go. And one of the king's counselors said to him, how much wrong and loss he suffered from those of holy church and that they took away his rights and lessened the jurisdiction of his court. And they marveled greatly how he endured it. And the good king answered, quote, I am quite certain that they do me much wrong, but when I consider the goodness and kindness which God has done me, I had rather that my right should go than have a contention or awaken a quarrel with Holy Church. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of to say about like obedience and prudence or whatever else and just his uh, extreme humility in this regard. But what were the rights that a king would have against the church. Oh, well, I mean, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to us. It's so different than what we think of. So when you say the church, we're talking about the clergy, I guess, the clerical hierarchy. That's what I assume he's yeah. doing right here. And, and yeah. the, the clerical hierarchy in the kingdom, right? So the bishops are lords in their own right. Okay, so they're temporal lords mm-hmm. as well as being bishops. And so they have an immense amount of estates and lands, and and, and that, but they they don't have it personally, right? The, the 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 diocese does. I mean, it's sort of it's a strange thing. It's unlike, I guess it might be somewhat like a noble family or something with its hmm. estates. So the king though has a great many, and over time accumulates all kinds of rights inside the functioning of these the temporal. Um, holdings and operations of the ecclesiastical hierarchy within the kingdom. And and a lot of these cross over into what we would think of as being very, very sort of internal, like like the ability to, to having rights to offer um, 
uh, livings, like prebends, like they can they can basically assign priests to churches and stuff like that. I mean, they have mm -hmm. they have direct ecclesiastical rights. Often, um, they have rights to like if a if a in some in a lot of dioceses if there's no bishop so if there's a vacancy that they have the king steps in and actually takes possession of the property until there is one but he gets all the revenues right so there's those kinds of rights there's all all kinds of rights like that but and they're always fighting about those things then just like everybody is just like the temporal lords are squabbling over these rights and that rights the bishops are involved so you read the courts cases and there's bishops who are in in these lawsuits and stuff, just like there is everyone else. Um, but that's not really, I think, what he's talking about, right? So what happens is when they cross over and start using, when the episcopate does, starts using spiritual power in temporal, in temporal fights, right? So when they're being corrupt mm -hmm. and they're, say, excommunicating people over, over a temporal lawsuit, or something that doesn't that isn't worthy of excommunication. So they're they're mm -hmm. deploying their spiritual power against an opponent who doesn't have spiritual power. Yeah. All right. Now this is an abuse, and and the king Louis resists this abuse when it occurs and is can be very hard on the bishops. I mean, very firm with them. Like you are, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is sacrilegious. What you're doing is an abuse of the power. Right. But he doesn't have any. He himself doesn't have any like spiritual power, any recourse other than that kind of like rebuke. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And so, um, but you get that, he does that. And so lots of times people will portray him and you get historians sometimes portray him as someone who's like, well, he's very pious, but he had, he always held the line against the church. And it's like, well, actually when you read the actual stuff, he's treating sinning and corrupt clergy bishops in a way similar to he, to the way he treats sinning and corrupt noblemen, you know, like it, yeah. and when they're not, he's actually, it's his court is overwhelmingly in, it rules overwhelmingly in favor of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. Now, um, when it comes to the Pope and that authority, Louis just, just straight up cooperates. I mean, he just, he just believes that, that the deployment of his power in conjunction with the 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 episcopal see is the way that Europe will be peaceful and have peace, right? What, but what he doesn't he doesn't believe that he holds his kingdom from the Pope. He doesn't believe that he's the Pope's knight. He doesn't believe right. So he doesn't. So again, there's times when when the when popes will suggest something or push for something, and he's like, no, that's not a good idea, or like that's not we're not doing that, or that's whatever. And that's not because he's resisting papal authority. It's because that's not that's not where papal authority is or resides, you know? mm -hmm. right? And so yeah. he's he understands his office or his role as the lay king to have a position within the church. Yeah, and that position it would it, it maybe it would be similar for us. Maybe the greatest analogy we could have would be like being a father of a family. And it's like I'm the father of a family. I have great deference for the bishop. I'm obedient to the bishop, but that doesn't mean I would allow him come in and discipline my children. Right. Right. Like if he tried to do that, I would say, Hey, what are you doing? Get out of here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't say, well, you're the bishop, I guess. Do you know what I mean? You know? <laughs> and, and so if you extend that kind of way of thinking of the lay, the lay office in the church mm -hmm. to a bigger level, you can have both obedience and deference and a sort of, this is my prerogative and, you know, not yours. And, mm -hmm. and he's a powerful man in his own right. So he's in a position where he can speak 
yeah. plainly yep. to the to the uh, spiritual lords. Mm-hmm. But they're primarily you know? <laughs> like what they're supposed to be doing is offering principles and precepts rather than applications of them. Is it, can I simplify it like that down low? You mean the bishops? The bishops, sorry, or like the or the pope when 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 Louis like saying no, that's not a good idea. Yeah, it's like they're supposed to be offering some sort of like. I mean, I don't want to put it so crassly, but kind of like some spiritual principle or vector, you know, by which they should be following, but not like, uh, hey, you know, you should really consider taxing the, the yeah, South you can't, because they need to build more roads. Yeah, or exactly. Yeah. Or start legislating in, <laughs> internal to the kingdom or start <laughs> determining uh, military policy or start trying to <laughs> do anything like that. It's like, no, you don't. That's that's not that's not the domain of the spiritual powers. Um, the spiritual powers are are... Um, I mean, it's complicated. It's it's not it's not as simple as that. They just preach and confect the sacraments. They do more than that. I mean, they're governors in their own right, but they're but that's primary. Their primary function is to preach and confect the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So, um, to end us, what are what are things when you have gotten to know Saint Louis? What what are some of the things that you have kind of taken more personally, other than like your entire academic career? <laughs> <laughs> what are things? That I, I think a takeaway from yeah. with Louis is the 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 great seriousness of the lay vocation. That the lay vocation in the church is not a second like a, a second thought or a sort of like I don't know. It's not just having family, you know, having kids and going to work. Right, like the lay vocation, because it's necessary or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, it, there's this kind of notion in that, that, but the lay vocation is actually has has great responsibilities. I mean, war, like you know, killing war. I mean, he, like in the Testament, the way he talks about war, about how mm-hmm. serious war is, mm-hmm. but it's necessary sometimes, and we have to do it, and we have to, and to understand that the laity are the ones who wield the sword, and that, and the clergy aren't. And the clergy don't get to decide when we wield it and when we don't. Like we have to decide that, mm. and that that's that's a very serious vocation. And it's not vocation, and it's not. It hasn't gone away. Like we we as lay people still have that responsibility, right? And we don't get to abdicate it. I mean, I think the modern state is like a, in a large part a giant a giant exercise in abdicating that responsibility, <laughs> right? Of like trying to hide from the the responsibility of the political. Mm-hmm. Um. So that's I know that's sort of not not a, a, no, like a that's sentimental good. thing or a deep spiritual thing. But it, screw it, that, I don't but want it, that. But, here. It, but it really it really matters to me. It has really mattered to me to see that, um, and that you can have a lay saint who was not a, and I don't want this to sound wrong, but very often you have lay saints that seem to be. They're lay people, but their sanctity is religious. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, like they, and then they were able to leave their kids once they all grew up and and became saints. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's great. I really think there are saints yes, who are religious, right? And there are, and there's a way of being saintly that is to be religious. Obviously, it's the easiest way, the most successful way. But to have a saint who is a layman from beginning to end, like his entire vocation is the lay vocation. Um, I mean, Louis is one of the very rare ones of those for the whole Middle Ages until the modern period. I mean, they're yeah. very, they're very rare. Yeah. So. Amazing. Andrew, <laughs> thanks so much. Thank Join you us. guys. We'll um, end by asking St. Louis, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us.